Hello, everyone, and welcome to the War on Palestine podcast. This is episode six, recorded and published on November 16th, 2023. I'm one of the co-hosts, Noura Erekat, joined by Ziad Aburish and Bassam Haddad. We continue to offer this podcast as a digest of news that is happening on the ground. We recognize that for so many activists, scholars, analysts, and people who care about what is going on in the past few weeks, and especially days, that it has been overwhelming, taking an emotional toll, and can lead to burnout, which is what we want to avoid. So we offer this digest as a resource in order to consolidate the news for you on multiple fronts. Number one on the ground in Gaza and the rest of Palestine, at the United Nations and the diplomatic front, in the geostrategic sense, within grassroots activism, as well as the black clash to it across multiple geographies featuring state repression and across the US media landscape. While the impetus for this program was the dramatic escalation of Israel's violence in the Gaza Strip, we want to emphasize, as we have done individually elsewhere, that Israel's campaign against the Gaza Strip is not Gaza-specific. It is Palestine-specific. In the end, what is happening in the Gaza Strip today is an intensification of the decades of settler colonialism and apartheid practices of the Israeli state, even if by many accounts, one of its most violent iterations ever. We are on day 41 of the Israeli siege and bombardment of the Palestinians in the Gaza Strip. The Israeli military's ground invasion has completely cut off northern Gaza, including Gaza City, Jabalia refugee camp, Beit Lahia, and Beit Hanun, from the remainder of the Gaza Strip. Therein, the Israeli military has encircled both the Jabalia refugee camp and Gaza City. Since Friday, November 10th, the Israeli military has waged what many consider to be a war on hospitals. It was then that the Israeli military encircled Al-Shifa, Al-Rantisi, and Al-Quds hospitals in Gaza City, along with the Indonesia hospital in Beit Lahia. Today, Thursday, November 16th, these hospitals remain surrounded by tanks and armored vehicles, with several reports of Israeli soldiers firing live ammunition into the hospitals. As of November 14th, only one of the hospitals in northern Gaza is reportedly still operational at a minimum level for those inside the hospital. All other hospitals in the region the Israeli military has cut off from the rest of the Gaza Strip has ceased operation due to the lack of power, fuel, medical consumables, oxygen, food and water. All of this has been compounded by Israeli bombardment and live fire in the vicinity. Al-Ahli Hospital in Gaza City currently has over 500 patients and is reportedly the sole medical facility able to admit patients in the north. However, it too faces increasing shortages and is expected to cease operations in a matter of days. Al-Shifat Hospital in Gaza City has been a particular focus point of the Israeli war on the Palestinians. It is the largest medical complex and the central hospital of the Gaza Strip. After bombarding the hospital compound and damaging various units and buildings within it, Israeli troops raided the hospital and took control of it. They have since disrupted, interrogated, and or detained numerous persons from the remaining medical staff, patients, and internally displaced persons that have been taking shelter in the hospital. The staff at Al-Shifa were forced to bury 179 bodies in a mass grave due to their inability to evacuate the bodies or properly maintain them in the midst of Israel's attack on the hospital. Video footage reportedly shows the Israeli military placing the Israeli flag atop the hospital after they raided it. 
The Israeli besiegement and raid of Al-Shifa and other hospitals has disrupted the ability of the Ministry of Health to certify and report Palestinian deaths. As of November 10th, the last date in which official reports were made, the UN Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs declared that the Israeli bombardment of the Palestinians of the Gaza Strip since October 7th had killed over 11,000 Palestinians, including more than 4,500 Palestinian children. In fact, 74% of Palestinian fatalities are comprised of women, children, and the elderly. It is worth noting that there are currently an additional 3,640 Palestinians, among them over 1,700 children that are reported missing and are most likely trapped or dead under the rubble of the destroyed buildings across the Gaza Strip. The Israeli bombardment of the Palestinian population of the Gaza Strip since October 7th has also displaced approximately 1.6 million Palestinians, which accounts for over 70% of the entire population of the Gaza Strip. This includes the attempted ethnic cleansing of northern Gaza, where Israel's forced population transfer has reduced the population from 1.0 million to anywhere under 300,000 Palestinians. While the Israeli ground incursion initiated on October 26th is currently focused on cutting off and further besieging northern Gaza, Israeli bombardment of the remainder of the Gaza Strip remains in effect. Gaza is under a full electricity blackout since October 11th, following Israel's halt of its power and fuel supply, which triggered the shutdown of Gaza's sole power plant. The entry of fuel, which is desperately needed to operate electricity generators to lend life-saving equipment, remains banned by the Israeli authorities, with one recent exception. On November 15th, some 23,000 liters of fuel entered the Gaza Strip via the Rafah crossing with Egypt, the first such delivery since October 7th. The Israeli authorities have restricted the use of this fuel only for use by UNRWA trucks to distribute aid. The entry of fuel for all other purposes remains banned, including for hospital generators and water and sanitation facilities. UNRWA claims that it typically requires 160,000 liters of fuel per day to operate its humanitarian infrastructure, which means that the fuel that entered on November 15th has barely been enough to really do what the aid agency requires. As listeners are probably aware, Hamas and other Palestinian organizations currently hold some 239 Israeli and foreign prisoners of war and hostages, 30 of them children. This count is separate from the four hostages Hamas released without conditions and the one prisoner of war the Israeli military claims it retrieved. While the taking of prisoners of war and hostages on October 7th has been a major talking point of the Israeli government, it has shown very little progress or genuine interest in their release or well-being. Media reports once again indicate that Hamas has an offer on the table to release at least 50 women and child hostages in exchange for five day for a five-day ceasefire and the release of most, if not all, women and children held in Israeli prisons. These reports claim the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has once again refused to accept the offer, choosing instead to press on with the raid of Al-Shifa Hospital and now with other elements of the Israel ground invasion and aerial bombardment. Recall that Hamas has claimed that 57 hostages were killed by Israeli, by Israeli airstrikes. Inside Israel, 
the families of Israeli hostages have increasingly broken ways with Prime Minister Netanyahu, expressing concern at how the ground invasion and the aerial bombardment threatens their loved ones and demanding that he do whatever it takes to bring their relatives back, even if it means exchanging all of them for all 6,000 plus Palestinian prisoners held by Israel. Moving to other parts of Palestine, in the West Bank, including East Jerusalem, Israeli military and settler violence has killed over 183 Palestinians, including 47 Palestinian children, injured over 2,655 Palestinians, including 279 children, arrested over 1,000 Palestinians, displaced over 1,347 Palestinians through confiscating or demolishing their homes. Israeli military-backed settler violence in East Jerusalem and the West Bank has reached an all-time high. Since 7 October, the UN Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs has recorded 246 Jewish-Israeli settler attacks against Palestinians in East Jerusalem and the West Bank. Nearly half of all 246 Jewish-Israeli settler attacks on Palestinians in East Jerusalem and the West Bank. Ziad? After four failed attempts to pass a resolution about the ongoing violence on Gaza, the United Nations Security Council adopted a resolution drafted by Malta which called for, quote, urgent and extended humanitarian pauses and corridors, end quote, in Gaza, and for, quote, a sufficient number of days, end quote, to allow full and safe access for UN agencies and partners. It also called for the immediate release of all hostages held by Hamas. The vote passed with 12 members voting in favor, none against, and three abstentions from the United States, the United Kingdom, and Russia. Israel's Deputy Permanent Representative Brett Jonathan Miller described the resolution as, quote, detached from the reality on the ground, end quote. While Palestinian permanent observer Riyad Mansour asserted that the Security Council should have, quote, heeded the call by the UN and every humanitarian organization on earth calling for a humanitarian ceasefire, end quote. Responding to the UN Security Council resolutions and other proposals for the provision of aid in Gaza, the Interagency Standing Committee issued a statement claiming that it will not participate in the establishment of any safe zones in Gaza that are set up unilaterally. Under the prevalent conditions, it went on, proposals to unilaterally create safe zones in Gaza risk creating harm for civilians, including large-scale loss of life, and must be rejected. They went on to describe that any discussion around safe zones must not detract from the party's obligation to take constant care to spare civilians, wherever they are, and meet their essential needs, including by facilitating rapid, safe, and unhindered humanitarian access to all civilians in need. Meanwhile, the United States continues its full support for the Israeli war on the Palestinians in the Gaza Strip. U.S. military aid to Israel, public rejection of a ceasefire, and pressure on regional allies and news outlets across the region to downplay the destruction by Israel of Palestinian life in the Gaza Strip remains pillars of its approach to this war. 
In the face of unprecedented dissent among staffers and officials across a variety of U.S. agencies, the Biden administration has dug deeper into its position of not only opposing a ceasefire, but claiming it has independent intelligence to justify the Israeli war on hospitals in general and its raid and takeover of Al-Shifa Hospital in particular. In a despicable repeat of an earlier claim the White House ultimately retracted, Biden again claimed that Hamas' operation on October 7th featured the decapitation of babies, an assertion that has been proven false. Such statements reflect an increasing isolation and desperation on the part of the Biden administration in the face of domestic and international opposition. It is worth recalling that several protest letters have been sent from officials throughout the Biden administration. At least three dissent cables have been leaked from the State Department, whereby staffers have objected to U.S. support for Israel in its war on the Palestinians. At least one of these dissent cables accused President Biden of spreading misinformation. More than 1,000 employees of the U.S. Agency for International Development signed an open letter to the Biden administration urging him to adopt a ceasefire. And more than 100 Democratic appointees and staff members representing some 40 government agencies signed another open letter to the Biden administration. In all these cases and more, the demand was for ending U.S. complicity in Israel's assault on the Gaza Strip and for the Biden administration to support a ceasefire. So, Noura, um, you know, we're in day 41 of the Israeli assault on the Gaza Strip. And I'd like us to pause a little bit because clearly the uh, objective of, uh, you know, bringing back the hostages or destroying Hamas or turning the Palestinian population against Hamas um, is nowhere near happening. Uh, not that it was ever possible in the first place, but how do we explain the the ferocity and the level of violence and destruction that the Israeli government military intelligence apparatuses are are carrying out in the Gaza Strip today. So, you know, one of the things that we've been pointing out is that Israel had stated military objective, which was to decimate Hamas, to retrieve the hostages, uh, extract the captured soldiers, although they conflated those categories, um, as well to, as to uh, turn the population against the Palestinians against Hamas. None of those military objectives from the beginning were at all commensurate with the with with, the, with Israel's military behavior. So we already knew from the beginning that those military objectives might have been stated for for media propaganda purposes, but were not actually reflective of what Israel was doing. Um, here, it's important to point out that even this framework of Israel, you know, using defensive force or some sort, form of self-defense um, in response to Hamas is not legible under international law. Israel does not have the right to use um, to uh, use self-defense against territory that it occupies, where it actually has as an occupying power where it maintains effective control, the duty and the responsibility to maintain um, order therein because it's usurped the policing powers. Um, and this was reiterated in 2004 by the International Court of Justice's advisory opinion in paragraph 139, where that was stated explicitly. And it's one uh, that, that echoes a colonial legacy where imperial powers um, like historically the United States um, uh, Portugal, Israel, and South Africa have attempted to use 
self-defense as a framework to control their colonial holdings. And that has been rejected legally. It continues to be rejected legally and it, it is rejected morally. So just to put that out there. So then going on, then what, what's the objective? Well, we knew that the objective from even the first week was unfettered vengeance, that this was vengeance upon Palestinians for the audacity to resist their subjugation using armed force. So that was that was the first objective, absolute um, vengeance. The other objective was an internal one and uh, consistent with Israeli historic policy, where in order to consolidate some sort of uh, political cachet or legitimacy within Israeli um, society, and which represents this security and political blunder um, in Gaza, was to demonstrate to an Israeli public that they could that this was still a legitimate government. And so it was it, the message was, you know, the destruction that was being needed was for these sick uh, domestic purposes. And the third is the one that's being borne out, which is, um, you know, genocidal campaign for the purpose of ethnically cleansing the north. Of Gaza, we knew this on day six when they announced that they wanted to. They they announced that 1.1 million Palestinians should flee the north to the south of Gaza, below the perimeter of Wadi Gaza. Um, and what was clear to everybody that was paying attention that this was an ethnic cleansing campaign to take even greater Palestinian land with less Palestine, the least number of Palestinians on it under the framework of a security uh, veneer and something that Israel has been doing consistently using the framework of warfare vis-a-vis -vis the Gaza Strip, especially since it announced unilateral disengagement in 2004, when it has steadily shrunk Gaza by expanding the northern and southern uh, buffer zones. And now we see a very dramatic expansion, which, you know, that's the language that I can use militarily, legally, but it's ethnic cleansing. It's ethnic cleansing. It is the ongoing Nakba. Um, and it was achieved through uh, genocidal warfare. Switching more to the U.S. role, um, how do you make sense of the Biden administration's position? I mean, obviously, historically, the United States has uh, uh, supported Israel diplomatically, militarily, and economically. Um, but the level of support... Um, even public statements like those of November 15th, where the Biden administration basically doubled down on legitimating uh, Israel's war on hospitals, Israel's war on al-Shifa, um, and, and making bogus claims once again of decapitated babies uh, on the October 7th uh, attack. Mm. Um, this kind of uh, uh, not just material, but rhetorical yeah, green lighting and standing shoulder to shoulder how do you make sense of it? It's mind boggling, right? So for most folks that understand this issue, what, what's clear, the structural, the structural alliance is very evident and self-explanatory. Israel maintains Israel, um, maintains that Israel is its most unique ally in the Middle East, has shaped, has reconfigurated the entire Middle East around Israel first, you know, for 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 affecting uh, effectuating uh, a significant Cold War asset in the Middle East and later uh, for many other uh, purposes that also reflect social and cultural embeddedness of Zionism in the American psyche. 
So that's structure, you know, and the fact that the U.S. is a racial settler colony, right? So that part we can explain and understand, but you're right, there's a gap here. What explains going above and beyond that structural alliance to the point where the Biden administration is literally, and Biden himself is literally lying. I mean, the, the fact that he said that statement about seeing pictures of beheaded babies that didn't exist and then saying it again, but also insisting that the bombing of Al-Shifa was self-fire, notwithstanding the fact that Israel has literally waged a war on hospitals explicitly, that the U.S. is also supporting by saying that there's military evidence that no one has seen and that isn't even subject to review at the Security Council, right? That there's internal dissent across 40 U.S. agencies, as well as congressional staffers, right? Is, is making clear, to me at least, how do we explain that? And the only way I can think to explain it is that this is personal for Biden. He is literally establishing this as his legacy. He will be remembered for this. And why would he take that risk? It is so deeply personal as to how else can you explain this lack of reason and ration. That's number one. And one, you know, that in, in my own, you know, study of historical uh, figures and, and administrations resembles Lyndon B. Johnson's commitment to Israel. One that was also very personal, that reflected his own alienation in, in Washington, you know, supposedly his mistress that had a commitment to this issue that becomes this personal that's grafted on to national policy. The second thing that I would say that explains this gap is the fact that here we are 41 days later and Israel and the U.S. has paid zero, right? There's zero cost to this U.S. policy amongst Arab regimes and monarchies. Zero, right? What, that Saudi Arabia is not going to continue in normal a formal normalization agreement, but nobody has cut its normalization agreements. At the Arab League summit, they had the opportunity to impose economic sanctions and oil embargo and failed to even do that, to withdraw their diplomatic, or to cut their diplomatic relations with Israel or to expel Israel from the United Nations as was done with South Africa in 1974. I mean, if this is not the reason to do it in the moment of genocide, then when would you, when would you do it, right? And so I think that that's also signaled to the Biden administration in the short run there's no cost politically amongst, you know, what it wants to control as its Middle East policy. Now, that said, that said, this is a reflection of colonial hubris because the cost is significant in the long term. This has significantly reduced, you know, if the already reduced um, morality and, and moral stance that the U.S. has taken anywhere in the world, one that continues, um, you know, an accelerated decline of its power since its invasion of Iraq in 2003, uh, which was waged on similar propaganda and lies. Um, and it also reflects a significant inflection point for Zionism. The fact that Israel's lost, Zionism has lost the moral argument, the legitimacy argument. At this point, the only way they're maintaining this hegemony is through coercive force through a military apparatus and through an apparatus of repression, whereby even the quiet are not quiet because they agree with Israel, they're quiet because they're afraid of punishment or they're not sure how to move around. I mean, what else can represent the bankruptcy, right? 
of Israel's moral position in this moment where it doesn't have anybody that wants to take risks on its behalf. And if, if they're, you know, and, and that's evident in the mass movement as well. So in the short term, I just want to emphasize that in the short term, sure, um, we can say that there hasn't been a cost, but this is a significant long-term cost. I do not think they are going to return from and recover from. Thank you, Ziad and Noura. This concludes our November 16, 2023 episode of the War on Palestine podcast, a regular program of, of approximately 20 minutes comprising updates on what is happening on the ground in Palestine, as well as some focused analysis on how to make sense of those developments. Today's episode was hosted and produced by myself, Bassam Haddad. It was written and presented by Ziad Aburish and Noura Aliqat, as well as myself. Research for this program was conducted by Anas Al Khatib, Mais Al Alami, Sara Al Yahya, Ranim Ayad, and Ala Atiyah Matwelli. Find out more on palestineincontext.org and have a good day. If you can. Mm -hmm.